begin with signs. And while Doreen's getting it up, I want to tell you a story about a man born in Mississippi. 1858, we got some Mississippi gals in here. <clears throat> I have Mississippi roots through my mom, and his, his name was Richard Anderson McBride. He was born in 1858. He came, uh, when he was two years old, his father, Samuel Oliver McBride, went into the war. He was in the 6th Mississippi Cavalry. That was my great-great-granddad. He was killed in the Battle of Colliersville on November the 3rd, 1863. And little Richard Anderson McBride was left just with a mama. Richard Anderson McBride saw everything that was dear to him lost. Their farm was taken by the Yankees as the family lore goes in. They took my great-great-grandmother's only horse, and she went to Richard McBride ended up going to Cleburne. He got married uh, to a gal there. They had kids, uh, grandkids, and my mother was one of his grandkids, Okay. And the only stories I know about Richard Anderson McBride is that he sat on the porch and he read his Bible. And he read his Bible looking, they said, for signs of Jesus coming. Are you looking for signs of Jesus coming? I'm looking for signs and I'm waiting and I'm anxious and I'm glad. Basic, uh, you have my clicker? <clears throat> okay, I just didn't know if that was the correct. Oh, that one. We had got a couple of clickers going on. Uh, back about, oh, I don't know, nine months ago, I bought this book called The Book of Signs. And I thought, undeniable prophecies of the apocalypse. And apocalypse, we think of the world blowing up and all that. Apocalypse means the uncovering, the unveiling. And for those of us who are Spanish speakers in here, we know that we call it in Spanish, apocalipsis. That's the name of the, of the book. In English, we call it the revelation that just means the uncovering or the unveiling. Richard Anderson McBride sat there on the porch in Cleburne, Texas. He was an employee with the Santa Fe Railroad, typical Scotch-Irish story. And uh, he sat and read his Bible, dreaming of Jerusalem. They said he wondered what Jerusalem looked like. In to Jerusalem for the first time with Sandy in a bus with, with Pastor Hagee, uh, they played this song about Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And I remember I was so overcome with emotion, I couldn't breathe. I just sat there and gasped because I was seeing things that my great-grandparents, my great-great-grandparents in any timeline of history as I biblically see it now at my almost 67 years, be 67 next Saturday. Uh, I didn't always believe this way, but I've come to believe it through everything that I see in Scripture. So, Lord, I pray that you would be in every word spoken today. Lord, I pray that we would delve deep into your word, these first eight verses that you gave for us for comfort, that you gave them to us, Lord, to be edified in you. And Lord, I pray that as this congregation and this pastor walk our way through this book that you tell us we will be blessed if we hear it. We will be blessed if we read it. Lord, I pray that you'd bless us because you've said in your word that we'll be blessed by just, Lord, I pray all these things in Jesus' name. So I want to start by saying there's two great dangers when you're studying Bible prophecy. One is that that's all you study. Have you all ever met these people and all they do is study Bible prophecy? And then there's others that don't even touch Bible prophecy. They don't want to look at it. It's too strange to them or too weird. And I want to tell you that both of them are wrong. All right, if you're only involved in looking at Bible prophecy, then you are ignoring what I call the whole counsel of God, which Peter talks about in Acts 20, 27. 
There's great comfort that can be taken from this book. And Sandy reminded me, and I told the group on Wednesday, I'm not, I'm not going over now what I did on Wednesday, but there's a little bit of it that's the same, that there's great comfort here. There's comfort for the believer because we see that God is in control. And this book is the period on the end of the world as we know it. It's like da-da-da-da-da, period. And when Jesus will tell us in a minute he is the Alpha and the Omega, he is from the beginning of time, and he'll be there at the end of time, okay? And our, and our sojourn on this earth is one bleep little mini micro nanosecond of that whole thing. As Scott told us so many times, it's all going to burn, right? And it is going to burn, and Revelation shows us it's going to burn. But the good news I have for you is that we as believers in Jesus Christ and his work on the cross will not be here when it burns, all right? God has never judged what is going to happen, and maybe it's code language in a way for some of them. So it's comfort in the Word. And why should we study this? Paul told that young Pastor Timothy that all Scripture is inspired by God. It is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man or the woman of God may be mature, thoroughly furnished and equipped to do all good works. That's my paraphrase. So don't go. You didn't quote that right. I'm paraphrasing. This book of signs, and as I began to read the book of signs, I realized more and more that the fruit is ripening on the tree. That's the way I thought of it as I studied this week. It was a ripening of fruit. Uh, I thought of our looking out right now at our peach tree full of blossoms. From now, it'll be soft. And if we can get to it before the birds and the squirrels and everything else, uh, we're going to pick that ripe fruit. And I think there is ripe fruit to pick now in, in things. I don't think there's ever been a biblical possibility until recently for the second of coming of Christ. And I say a biblical possibility, okay? God can do whatever he wants, but I mean lining up with all that I see in the Bible. And then for Christmas, a couple in here gave me another book by David Jeremiah. It's called, I think, uh, The End, How the End Will Be. And I have it in the pastor's library, and it'll be along with this book. Oh, here it is. Yeah. A couple gave me this, The World of the End, Dr. David Jeremiah. I have not made it to the end of the book. But it is a book talking about these signs that I'm talking about, the ripening of fruit, okay? So now... The end is a biblical possibility. That's what I want to uh, communicate to you this morning. It's truly a biblical possibility. And I'm going to show you the reasons why. These are the four signs that I think are the greatest signs of his second coming. Now, for those who have studied Bible prophecy, the second coming will come after the trigger event, which is called the rapture, which is described in 1 Thessalonians 4. 1 Thessalonians 4 will come as a thief in the night, the rapture. It's going to be kind of a, let's say, a blinded event that the world's not really going to see or participate in. The world will not see Jesus in that event. We will hear the trumpet sound, just as Pat Terry sang. We will recognize the voice of the archangel, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and we that remain will join with them in the air. Say hallelujah. That is the reality. If you believe God's word is true, that is our reality. I'm not some crazy speaker up here uh, dreaming up crazy stuff. I'm a lawyer that looks at text. I look at events. I look at evidence. I've been talking with one of y'all about evidence recently. There's all kinds of evidence that the fruit is ripening. Number one, 
eight short years before I was born, and some of you were alive, some of the people, real old people in here. Cassandra's always called me a real old guy, you know. She's not here today for me to pick on her. It was the reestablishment of the Jews, the Jewish people, the sons of Jacob, into the land of Israel. That did not happen for 2,000 years. I'm going to repeat it. It did not happen for 2,000 years. When uh, Richard Anderson McBride sat and read his Bible, he probably wondered, what do these scriptures mean that show Jews back in Israel? We all know that that's over with. It, it, it came and went. The Muslims came and took over the land. Then the Ottoman Turks and then the British were there. And then in 1948, on May the 14th, the Jews returned permanently to the land of Israel. They are there. They are embedded there. They have been at war with their neighbors. And so something had to ripen for the time to be ripe for them sitting there. Do y'all realize in Ezekiel chapter 38, it says that, that the enemies of Israel will attack her when she is at peace and there are no walls in the city? Is that a picture of the Israel we've known during the earlier parts of our lifetime? No. But in 2020, under the administration of Donald Trump, something called the Abraham Accords began. Are you all aware of that? If you're not, I've given you in the written sermon that you got, all of these are footnoted that I've given you. You can go and read all about the Abraham Accords. I gave it to you. And in those accords, Israel is being set up for a time of peace. It is now at peace with approximately eight uh, different countries that were at war to destroy her before now. For the first time ever, the fruit of Ezekiel 38 is ripening. It is becoming, they're at peace. Uh, certain Israelis now are going to Saudi Arabia even on vacations. Guys, this has never happened in our lifetime. I'm not talking about in Richard Anderson McBride's. Something is happening. The air is stirring. The time is coming. Thirdly, We've seen global political unity that five years ago I did not dream could even happen. We saw it when COVID happened in 2020. For the first time ever, I think, in anything I can look at in history, there was an entire international response politically where the world sort of unified, and it was basically a power grab, okay? A power grab that showed me that these things that I read about in Revelation, like the mark of the beast, and, and please don't run out of here and say, oh, he said COVID's the mark of the beast. It is not. I'm just saying COVID was the event that triggered a global response of this kind of political unity that showed us control that I never dreamed could happen. Can anybody amen that? Amen. Where they hauled pastors in Canada off and put them in jail, where they deemed that churches were unessential that folks shouldn't meet here. And we were out of church for church meetings for six weeks. Then we came back and we put up tape and we were careful and did things. But it was that global response that enabled me to realize fruit was ripening where I could understand how these events talked about could be a possibility. Y'all, y'all with me? Fourthly is an alliance of nations that have never been aligned. These nations in Ezekiel 38 will come to war against Israel. And they're a bizarre, they're bizarre bedfellows, let's put at it that way. And the ones I'm talking about are Syria, Russia, and Turkey. They're aligned. I don't know that they've ever been aligned. 
And it's so strange that this happens, and we don't ever really know about it. In 2015, Kamaimim Base was set up by the Soviets in Syria in the town of Tartus, Syria, as a permanent military base. So Russia now has a warm water port. Did anybody in here know that? Raise your hand if you knew it. The Russians. Sorry. I didn't know it. They do They do now, okay? And I looked at Tartus, Syria, and I examined and tried to think, maybe that's Tarsus. It's kind of right about the place where Paul of Tarsus was living. So the Russians now have a permanent seaport on the Mediterranean in Syria, and Turkey is the destination, the most popular destination for Russian tourists. There's all this interchange, and Turkey is the number one trading partner with Russia. Guys, this is, uh, this is an eyebrow raiser, okay? For people like me who have studied world history, this is signs of the second coming of Christ. This doesn't give us an idea of the rapture because I believe the rapture happens without notice. It needs no signs. Everything that needs to happen for the rapture to take place has already happened. The Lord can take us at any moment if he desires to do so. And the tribulation will follow immediately and will go on seven years from there. Here's a little timeline I want everyone to look at. Timeline of the end times, and I will give you proper disclosure. This is a pre-millennial. That means that the tribulation happens before the millennial reign of Jesus, which is a thousand-year rule diagram. There's a pre-millennial. There's a mid Millennial, there's a post-millennial, and then there's a amillennial, or what did I used to say, a pan-millennial. It'll all pan out, right? But here's what I take from Scripture. The church age is where we are now. The church age began on the day of Pentecost, when believers who trusted Jesus met in the upper room, they were, the Holy Spirit of God was poured out on them. And at that moment in time, the church age began. It's the age of the church. Israel was still there like four table legs down under the table, but the tabletop became the church, okay? The action was happening in and on the church. And the church age will not end until the rapture of the church. We're told in 1 Thessalonians it'll, it'll come. It'll be like a thief in the night. It's just going to happen. And in one twinkling eye, you and I will be transported all right, and we will meet the Lord in the air, and we'll meet the others who have gone before us that the early believers called sleeping, okay? Their bodies were sleeping. Their souls had gone to be with the Lord. Paul tells us that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And in that twinkling of an eye, we will be with the Lord in paradise. You better say hallelujah. That, that's where I want to be. I can't wait to see Jesus. He's coming again. And then there will be seven years, and we're going to read about these. And all kinds of things will happen. And these correspond if, of those who you were under my teaching in the book of Daniel with the 70 weeks prophecy of the book of Daniel. We will talk a little bit about Daniel's prophecies on Palm Sunday again this year, as I usually do. After seven years of tribulation, there will be the return of Christ. He will come back this time not as a lamb, but as a lion. I said on Wednesday night, we had a giant storm the first day of March, and I remembered the old-timers telling us, wow, March came in like a lion, and it went out like a lamb. Jesus came in like a lamb, and he'll come back like a lion. He'll be on a white horse. He will set all the injustices of the world to peace. He will bring peace on the earth and justice to the earth as man has never known. 
Then there will be a millennial reign of Christ. It will be a thousand years, and we'll deal with all that later. But I wanted to show you a simple timeline. You might ask, why is there so much symbolism in Revelation? Haven't you all ever wondered? Why can't he just come out and tell us what he wants us to know? Well, David Jeremiah in these books that I've just mentioned mentions three reasons, and I'm going to add a fourth. Number one, he says symbols are not weakened by time. They were written 2,000 years ago. They're symbolic. And secondly, they give certain, they arouse emotions in us when we hear about a lamb or we hear about a lion. There's emotionalism that goes along with that. Y'all follow me? You know? Uh, thirdly, symbols can be used as a secret code. And they're kind of a secret code in here. And they were written to much of the church at that time, remember, were Jewish Christians. So there's a lot of Old Testament symbolism in here that we're going to study and, and understand because we need to understand that to understand what is being communicated. Y'all with me still? And then a practical reason was is because as the Romans were there over the church, there could have been greater persecution even than Domitian brought on them if somebody had picked up the book of Revelation and seen things uncoded, okay? And it's kind of weird. I don't think that unbelievers can really even get through the code. And we know that from when we studied Daniel. Do you all remember the verses that we saw in Daniel? After Daniel had been given a vision, the messenger, and I use that word, it's the Hebrew word for that we call angel, said this to Daniel about why certain things can be understood by believers, but not by unbelievers. Go your way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed till the end of time, the time of the end. And there's going to be all this talk about seals, aren't there? In the book of Revelation, many shall be purified, made white and refined, but the wicked shall do wickedly. And listen, and none of the wicked shall understand, but the wise shall understand. So there's going to be things in here that we understand. There's going to be things that we don't understand. And it's okay that we don't understand everything. A lot of things are just the mysteries of God. And remember what Dr. House has told us that mysteries, mysterion in Greek means truths that are yet unknown. They hadn't been revealed yet. And then Paul talks to the Corinthian church about how we think differently. We as believers have a different set of antennas going on. We have different ears. We have the perception of the Holy Spirit that the unbeliever doesn't have. Paul tells that church in Corinth, but the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. In our men's group, uh, one of our members today was talking about how he was sharing Christ with his mother's boyfriend. And he just, he's a guy, 78, just said, this is all nonsense. This is poppycock. Why is that? For the foolishness, it is foolishness unto them. Neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. Hallelujah. We have the ability to spiritually discern things that the unbeliever cannot discern. Just a word, a paragraph about what people, great people, have said about Revelation. On Wednesday, we looked in detail at the quote by Jefferson. Yeah, I'm talking about the Thomas Jefferson. He said he wasn't a believer. He wasn't a Christ follower. He described the book of Revelation as the ravings of a maniac. No more worthy nor capable of explanation than the incoherences of our own nightly dreams. He just said in 60 terms, it's just a bad acid trip. All right. That's how they would have said back then, right? Something like, yeah, bad LSD trip. 
Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer, said, I find in this book it's neither apostolic nor prophetic. And you think, wow, what kind of glasses did he have on? Because it's all prophecy. Saying further that I can, I could in no way detect that the Holy Spirit produced it. Isn't that bizarre? So I don't know what Martin Luther's problem was, but I know that it's God's Word, and I know that we are blessed when we read it. A little bit about biblical hermeneutics. Biblical hermeneutics is a course that Dr. House teaches at three or four seminaries. Hermeneutics comes from the name, I've told you all, of the God Hermes. Remember when I've talked about He's a little messenger God with the, got the wings on his feet and, you know, all that stuff. That's where we get this word hermeneutics. And it's trying to figure out what the, what the writer is saying to the person receiving a message. Basically, it's biblical interpretation. It's a fancy word. How do we interpret all this stuff? And the main thing has been the problem of how to interpret the symbolism. And Dr. Thomas Constable, that uh, my fair cousins like to read his notes, gave three. I wasn't going to make this a history lesson about hermeneutics, but it's the idealist, meaning it's all allegorical. None of it's real. It's a story where things represent other things. Two, preterist, that comes from the Latin word. It's historical. It happened. It's over with. It's gone. Three is historicist. That means it's gone on through the whole history of the church, and I believe some of that. And the futurist view that it's all going to happen sometime in the future. I want us to use four plain rules when we read this book. You can take a screenshot of this. The rule of common sense, plain sense. I think that first when we look at Scripture, Doug, we ought to just see what it says. What does the Bible say? What could it possibly mean? Secondly, Remember the law of double reference. This is when prophetic scripture can refer to different events in time. There can be an old event that happened and a future event. We know this when we talk about, uh, about the abomination of desolation coming into the temple. We know that Antiochus Epiphanes historically did that, came in, slaughtered a pig in the temple. Well, it's also referring to what the beast will do in the future times. Thirdly is the law, law of recurrence. Sometimes a story is told in the Bible, and then it's retold in detail. Have any of y'all ever read the first three chapters of Genesis and go, wow, it looks like God is creating humans twice? Has anybody ever seen that? You go, that is the law of recurrence. He's told us what happened and then gives us greater detail of how it happened and the events that happened. And then last is the law of context. We always want to look at anything we read in context of the whole counsel of God's Word. You know, the only thing we don't have to do with that is, is things that have to do with the character of God, because context doesn't matter. God is who He is all the time, all right? So we're going to use those four plain rules as we delve into this. And I want to say that I'm not probably going to do all the chapters verse by verse, but I'm going to do the chapters until we just feel like, you know what, now let's go. But at the end of this, my goal is that we'll all be closer to the Lord, and that we will all have a real understanding of what the book does say and what it might not say and what it might say that we don't understand, okay? So let's start. Revelation 1 through 8. If you have your Bible, read along with me. This is the revelation of whom? Is it revelations or is it a revelation? People go, yeah, we're studying revelations. No, we're not. We're studying revelation. Of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. I, I'm going to read it all through, and then I'm going to 
analyze it verse by verse. He sent and signified by his messenger to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God. Who's the word of God? Amen. Jesus. And to the testimony of Jesus Christ, to all things that he saw, blessed is he who reads, who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it for the time is near. John to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler over the kings of the earth to him who loved us. And did he cover us from our sins? No, he washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he's coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Boy, amen and hallelujah. Verse 1 says, as I said, the revelation. What does it mean to uncover and unveil and reveal? Don, it means to unveil everything about Jesus and his personality, everything about his character, everything about the creation of the earth, and everything about the destruction of this earth and the creation of a new earth. I think of Jesus as the bookends. He's the Alpha and the Omega He's like bookends that go to eternity past and that go forward to eternity future. We know that when he came the first time, he came as a lamb, as I said. He humbled himself even to the point, Scripture tells us, of being put on a cross and crucified for each of our sins and the sins of the whole world. He goes on, so it's the revelation, it's the uncovering, the unveiling, the revealing of all about Jesus, all about his creation which God gave him to show his servants. Who are his servants? We are his servants, all those who diligently serve him. So this is a piece of scripture written, not just to seven churches, but written to me and you. Hallelujah. Things which must shortly take to place, and in Greek, that just has a sense that there's an immediacy to it. As I said, there's nothing dependent. No, we would say in law, no condition preceding. That means nothing has to happen beforehand for the rapture of the church to take place. And he signed and he sealed it and he sent it by his angel to his servant John to all of us. You know, when the king used to send a message, he would sign it and he would seal it, right? That's what this is signed and sealed and brought to each of us who bore witness to the word of God. So, John is a witness that saw the Lord. He saw him. He loved him. Remember, John was there even at the foot of the cross. And there from the cross, Jesus said, John, behold your mother. Mother, behold your son. And we know that John took Mary into his home, and she lived with him there for the rest of her life. I think it happened in Ephesus. When we were there, remember, some of y'all who have been there, the bus went by something that was said to be John's house and Mary's house. We 
We just read recently in 1 John 1 where he's talking about how well he knew Jesus. He said, that which was from the beginning, we have heard. That which we have seen with our eyes, we looked on him. We looked on, we gazed upon him is what the Greek says. We gazed upon him wondering, who is he? What is he really about? Okay. And our hands handled him concerning the word of life. And the word there is the logos. Logos in Greek is not like word in English. It means the energy, the meaning, the meaning of everything that is. We have a word like that that we sing in, in the Irish language and we say, and it's, it's the word for word. It's a word that means just containing all the energy and all the meaning of the universe. We don't have a word like that in English. Uh, Jesus is the word. He is the logos. Thank you, pastor. I appreciate that. That life that was manifested, it was shown to him that we've seen and bear witness and declare that eternal to you, that eternal life, which was with the father was shown to us that which we have seen and heard. We declare to you, why does he declare this stuff to us? And these things we write to you. Why? That your, your joy may be full. So when we come into a relationship with the Lord Jesus, we are promised an abundant life. He said in his word that the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. But I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. I don't know about you. I want abundant life. And part of an abundant life is that when we read these words, we are blessed. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Janie. Blessed is he. Here it goes, guys who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy. So these, this letter was written and it, it was read in churches and people heard it. Some people said it and they, and it, and keep those things which are written in it for the time is near. Then it says, John to the seven churches, which are in Asia. And when we're talking about Asia, we're not talking about China and Korea and Japan. This is talking about Asia minor, which we now know as Turkey. And there's seven churches that I think are just sort of, and we can talk about this, but I think there's sort of tendencies that can happen in any church, anywhere, anywhere in time. That's kind of how I came up to it. Sandy told me when she was little, she would read this and wonder, well, why did Jesus only write seven churches? I don't think he just wrote to these seven churches. I think it was a message to them. Probably it was the stage. Well, I won't say probably, most certainly. It was the stage in, in which each of these churches found their condition, their spiritual condition. Like right now, we have kind of a spirit here of excitement and of community. We've been talking about getting a mission statement, and I was telling Sue last night in an email that it's going to have to have, include something about a community of faith. That's where we are right now. Well, there may come a day, and I hope there isn't, when this church loses sight of its first love, you know? And we're going to hear these warnings in all of these churches next week. Now, it says, grace to you, so he extends the usual grace to you in peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. So, the Lord is giving a message to us through the messenger, speaking to John, saying to us, peace. He said, him who was and is and is to come, that we're to have grace and we're to have peace. And it says, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Now, I want to tell you, I'm not going to conjecture everything that I think and everything people have said. A lot of pastors will get up and say, well, so-and-so says such-and-such. Now, I will say that Wearsby, 
because you gave us the Wearsby commentary, and I read in the Wearsby commentary, it's, gonna, it's in the pastor's study, Wearsby thinks this is just seven that's a perfect number, talking about the Holy Spirit, so it's like a whole lot of Holy Spirit, you know, right there around these churches. Well, I don't know about that. I'm not going to conjecture because I don't know. There's some things called the apocryphal books that I've talked about. Enoch, Enoch is one in the book of Tobit. And they talk about seven angels that stand before God. Uriel, Raphael, Ragel, Michael, Sariel, Gabriel, and Remiel. I'm not going to say that's what it's about either because the Bible doesn't tell us it is. So when I see something like this as we go through, and I don't have a certainty about it, I'm just going to say I, I kind of take a pass on that. So anyway, what we do know is that he says from the seven spirits who are before his throne. I know seven is God's perfect number. I know that. And it tells me that God has some spirits and they're there in front of his throne. That means God is on his throne. So what I take out of this, that guys, God is still on his throne. And no matter what happens out in the political world, oh my gosh, you pull up CNN or Fox News or Breitbart or whatever you want to look at, it's like, oh my gosh, are we going to survive through the end of the week? And I have learned to not let those things infect my mind. I will not let them derail the fact that I know that I know that Jesus is on the throne. I know that I know that God is working his purposes out as time draws nearer and nearer. I sang that Wednesday. All right. Nearer and nearer draws the time, the time that shall surely be when the earth is filled with the glory of God and the waters cover the sea. If you were here Wednesday night, you got to hear me sing that song. Some of y'all are glad you missed it. But anyway, God is still on his throne. The Holy Spirit is alive and well on planet earth. Jesus will come back because he promises to do so. He will take us with him when he comes. And those of us who do fall asleep or experience human death will have the joy of never experiencing death again. And I'm looking forward to that. As a matter of fact, the next verse talks about it. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead. What does firstborn from the dead mean? He was the first one. Well, there was people that were resurrected. Remember, Lazarus. Lazarus died again. Boy, Randy put the bummer on the whole story. But, but it's true. Lazarus was raised from the dead, and poor Lazarus, he had to die again. Jesus was raised from the dead, never to see death again. And we are co-inheritors with him, and we inherit that privilege, and that is how he conquered death. Should we in this room, any of us, pass like Drunel, Mr. Drunel, and others that have gone, Paul Flukicker, the fact of the matter is they're never going to die again. And if we go through death, we're going to go through it one time. And then we're going to live forever, Margarita, and ever and ever and ever with him in glory. Hallelujah. Y'all need to join Janie and clap on that one. Then it, he says here, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins with his own blood. We're almost done here. In the old covenant, our sins were covered by the blood of a lamb or the blood of a goat or blood of, you know, different. But we have our sins washed. We stand sanctified before the Lord, all right? I'm not talking about sanctified living. We've been preaching on that too. But we're talking about the fact that when he died for our sins on the cross, they were not just covered up, but they're still under there somewhere. They were washed away. We can all shout hallelujah for that. 
And it says this, and he made us kings and priests. And I asked the group, we had a fire, little fireside chat, Diana and Michael and Scott and I and a couple others on Friday night. And I, I told him, this bothers me. What does this mean? Well, I went back and looked at the Greek, and it says, it doesn't say he has made us kings. This is why I wonder why the translators of the King James said this. What it says in there is that he has made us a kingdom, all right, and priests. So we are operating in a kingdom. We're not kings. We are royalty. We're sons and daughters of the king, but we're operating in a kingdom, the kingdom of God. And we, how are we priests? We know that people don't need us to be a mediator to God. We're priests in that we are to bring a message, and Diana reminded me of this Friday night, of reconciliation. That's how we're priests. We're go-betweens to tell people, hey, this is the gospel. This is how you can be set right with the Lord. Amen? And it should be as natural to us, as I said on Wednesday night, as putting one foot in front of the next. Guys, it shouldn't be a big hang-up when we tell people about the Lord. When they reject the gospel, they're not rejecting us. They're rejecting the gospel. Scripture tells us that he has also made us, and this is 1 Peter that we recently studied, a royal priesthood. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. Guys, that's us. We are a royal priesthood that you may proclaim the praises of him who did what? Called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Hallelujah. Who once were not a people. We weren't a people. We were a nothing. I, my people were a nothing on the backside of Britain, off in Ireland somewhere. But now we are the people of God who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. And we're going to talk about Wednesday night about Patrick. He's the patron saint of Ireland and about how he asked God, and we're going to sing in a minute a song that we say in English, Be Thou My Vision. It's such a bad translation. It says, Be Husa Mohula in the Gaelic language. That means, God, be my eyes. Amen. Someone thought eyes. I'll just say vision. Two different things. Amen. Be my eyes. Let me perceive the world through your eyes, Lord. Let me see others through your eyes, Lord. Be my eyes. If, we, if God is our eyes, we have discernment to look and know where to go. Amen? And we're going to talk about that on Wednesday night. Behold, he's coming with clouds. That's a promise. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. So is this talking about the rapture? Think about it. This is a legal question. It's not the rapture. Because remember I told you the rapture is kind of like a secret event. This is the second coming of Christ because everyone's going to be able to see him. It says the Jews will see him, and that goes with Zechariah that says they will look on him, him whom they have pierced, and they will mourn like a mother does for a child. And not only that, the whole world's going to mourn because they're going to realize, wow, we missed the boat. Every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And all of the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. And I, he ends it, am the Alpha and Omega, this is for today, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come. That is God Almighty in the flesh that we learned in 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. Over and over, uh, John tells us that there's apostasies out there that want to say Jesus was less than all God and less than all man, and he's God, he is the God-man. He's the Alpha and the Omega, as I said, the bookends. 
Revelation as we study it will be the period on history as we know it. Guys, I don't know about y'all, but I can't wait to see Jesus. I can't wait to see Jesus in his glory as he burst from the sky. As I read this to Sandy the other morning, I couldn't get through it because I started to kind of weep, and I don't do that much. She can tell you. She's like, oh, are you okay? I can't wait to be held in his arms and see the glimmer in his eye. Tell me how it's going to be, Scott. Read it from the Bible again. Come on, Paul. I can't wait to see Jesus because he's coming again. I can't wait to hear trumpets. Can you imagine when we hear the trumpets that nobody else can hear? Amen. We're going to hear them and we're going to sit up straight. The hair on the back of our neck is going to go up or maybe even on top of our heads. And we're going to say, man, I've never heard a trumpet like that. All right. I can't wait to cast off my burdens. Who's got burdens today that they want to cast off? And feel my feet, leave the ground. Tell me, tell me, Matt, how it's going to be. Devin, read it from the Bible again, Janie. I can't wait to see Jesus because Janie, he's coming again. I can't wait, my favorite verse, to see heaven. It's so funny. To walk those streets of gold, I can't wait to check into my mansion and get my sleeping bag unfold. That we got that line wrong there. I think it's kind of funny because you're in a mansion, but you're sleeping in a sleeping bag. <laughs> Tell me how it's going to be, Charlie. Read it from the Bible again, Eric. I can't wait to see Jesus early, Mark, as Jesus is coming again. Sorry, I told you I wouldn't call people's names out, but I'm naming everybody today. Lynn, I can't wait to see Jesus. I can't wait to see Jesus, Doreen, and Michael, and Bill, Sherry. He's coming again. I can't wait to see Jesus. Jesus is coming again. The Word of God says it. I believe it. And that settles it. Let's pray.